Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hey everyone, Nate Hale here. Just a word of caution. This episode contains descriptions of graphic violence and may not be suitable for all ears. If you're squeamish or have young ears listening, you might want to try a different episode. And now, on with the show. The city of Le Mans in the northwest of France has come to be known primarily as the home of the world-famous car race, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. The city is also notable for being the birthplace of a number of famous clergymen, artists, and aristocrats, including Henry II of England, who was born there in 1133. But if you scan the list of famous people to have come from Le Mans, you'll also come across two names that stand out for an altogether different reason. A pair of sisters named Christine and Leah Papin, who were born of the lowest rungs of society and who made a name for themselves by committing one of the most violent and shocking crimes in French history. Their father was Gustave Papin, and he married the girl's mother, Clemence de Ray, in October 1901, despite his parents' objections. Clemence didn't have a very good reputation around town. She was rumored to be promiscuous, and in particular was said to be having an affair with her employer. But Gustave was a man in love. And on top of that, he'd already gotten her pregnant. Just four months after the couple were married, their first daughter, Amelia, was born. But marriage turned out to be nothing like Gustave expected. His new bride showed little interest in either their newborn daughter or in him. Soon, Gustave's feelings toward Clemence turned from madly in love to just mad. All throughout their courtship, Gustave had ignored the rumors about Clemence's promiscuous nature. But now, doubt had begun to creep in and he was starting to wonder if all the gossip may be true. Not only were his suspicions growing that Clemence really had been having an affair with her boss, but now he was growing increasingly paranoid that the affair was still going on. Gustave made several attempts to catch her in the act, but all his sneaking around behind Clemence's back proved futile. And yet, despite having no direct evidence of his wife's infidelity, Gustave began making plans to put a stop to it. He planned on moving the family away to a different city, a good distance away from both Le Mans and Clemence's suspected lover. In July 1904, Gustave got a job at a sawmill in Marine, eight kilometers away. He saw this as a second chance for the couple, but Clemence was furious. At first, she flat out refused to go, And then, when she saw her demands weren't swaying Gustave one bit, she then threatened to commit suicide if he forced her to leave Le Mans. But Clemence also knew she didn't have a lot of options. She was pregnant with her second child, and she knew that if she left Gustave, the conservative village would shun her, and no other man would want her. So she resigned herself to her fate of having to start over in another village. Their second child, Christine, was born on March 8, 1905. But Gustave's hopes of repairing the marriage failed. 
Gustave and Clemence argued constantly. Clemence refused to care for the children, claiming she was too tired and distraught from the move. Gustave began to drink heavily to drown his sorrows. As he spiraled into alcoholism, Gustave ended up sending baby Christine to live with his sister Isabel, who also lived in Marine. Then in August 1910, Gustave and Clemence returned to Le Mans with their first daughter Amelia. A little over a year later, on September 15, 1911, Clemence gave birth to their third daughter, a girl whom they named Leah. While this was going on, Christine was being raised by her Aunt Isabel. Gustave's sister had long harbored a deep distrust of all men, which made her overwhelming desire to one day become a mother all that much more difficult. So naturally, she jumped at the chance when Gustave offered her the opportunity to raise Christine. Isabel had watched her mother's health being destroyed by numerous pregnancies, and she had long since vowed to not fall prey to the same fate. Isabel had once worked as a maid, and when her employer died, her boss left her a small inheritance. This gave her the financial freedom to focus her attention on bringing up Christine. Also consequently, Christine grew up learning one major lesson from her aunt, that men were untrustworthy monsters who would always seek to exploit women. Around the time Leah was born, Clemence learned of another shocking secret. It was alleged that Gustave had raped their firstborn daughter, Amelia, who would have only been around 10 years old at the time. But Clemence wasn't only furious at Gustave, but Amelia as well. Coming to believe her daughter had actually seduced her husband. At the same time, there was also a long-standing rumor that Amelia wasn't actually Gustave's daughter. It's impossible to say whether there was any truth in any of these rumors. But nonetheless, Clemence set about having her revenge on both Gustave and Amelia. She divorced Gustave and then sent Amelia away to live at a religious orphanage called La Bonne Pasteur. This orphanage had a notorious reputation for cruelty toward children. But despite knowing this, Clemence sent her children there anyway. Clemence then removed Christine from Isabel's care and placed her in the orphanage as well. Baby Leah was given to a great uncle to be looked after. This finally gave Clemence the freedom she'd long been seeking. She was now completely husband and child-free. After the uncle died in 1918, Clemence placed Leah in a religious institution in Le Mans. She was about seven years old at the time. In that same year, Amelia entered a convent and went on to dedicate her life to the church. Christine had always idolized her older sister. She originally desired to follow in Amelia's footsteps and become a nun herself, but Clemence forbade it. At the time in France, the law stated that a parent had absolute authority over their children until age 21. Prior to Amelia entering the convent, Clemence had been forcing her oldest daughter to work and hand over her wages. But with that meal ticket gone, she then ordered Christine to pick up the slack and begin working as a servant too. This helped set in motion the horrific events yet to come. Christine began working in a number of households, as did her younger sister Leah. With Amelia out of the picture, Christine began focusing her attention on Leah. The two sisters bonded, coming to see themselves as having no one else left in the world but each other. They often worked together in the same households, and the people they worked for often treated them terribly. This lifetime of mistreatment would finally reach a breaking point in February 1933, 
when the sisters committed one of the bloodiest and most heinous crimes in French history. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from my secret podcasting studio beneath the Sphinx, and this is The Conspirators. On May 24, 2018, a couple was found guilty of murdering their French nanny and burning her body over a bonfire. 35-year-old Sabrina Kuiter and 40-year-old Wiesam Maduni were convicted of killing their 21-year-old French nanny, Sophie Leonette. The couple was accused of beating, starving, and torturing the young woman to death before burning her body in their London backyard. During the trial, psychiatric experts claim Maduni and Kuiter were both suffering a particular mental illness known as a folie a deux, or the madness of two. This is a shared psychosis between two people that feeds off each other, often to devastating effect. In this particular instance, the psychosis all centered around a bizarre paranoid belief they shared about Coeter's ex-boyfriend Mark Walton, a founding member of the pop group Boyzone. Kawita had long suffered from bipolar disorder and depression. And Maduni came to join in her obsession, believing that their nanny, Sophie Leonette, was having a secret love affair with Walton. As a result, the couple locked Leonette up, then proceeded to torture her to death by starving her and beating her to death with an electric cable. Eventually, the couple would drag the young woman's remains outside their home and light it on fire. The concept of the shared psychotic disorder known as folie deux was first developed in the 19th century by Charles Lesseguier and Jean-Pierre Faure. The earliest recorded case was that of Margaret and Michael, a married couple who got into a sort of feedback loop where they continued to reinforce their personal delusions. This couple began to believe their home was being targeted by random intruders. But these unseen intruders never stole anything or vandalized the property. Instead, these interlopers would spread dust around the house, collecting pieces of lint and scattering them about. They would also either grind or walk in the couple's shoes until the soles were worn down. Although husbands and wives or other romantic relationships are often among the most common examples of this sort of relationships at the center of a folie deux, they have also been seen in all manner of other relationships. I previously did an episode on the story of Leopold and Loeb, two wealthy college students in Chicago who, in May 1924, attempted to commit what they believed would be the perfect crime, the kidnapping and murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks. Many psychiatrists have pointed to the case of Leopold and Loeb as a classic example of folie deux. There were long-standing rumors that Leopold and Loeb might have secretly been involved in a romantic relationship, or at the very least, an unrequited one. But whatever the root cause might have been, the two young men began to feed on each other and come up with what they believed to be the plan for a perfect murder. Foliadu has been diagnosed in a number of siblings as well. This included the story of Christine and Leah Papin. In 1926, the then 22-year-old Christine got a job working as a maid for the Lancelin family in Le Mans. The Lancelins were a wealthy and prominent family who lived in a two-story townhouse at number 6 Rue Briere. René Lancelin was a retired lawyer who lived there with his wife Léonée and their adult daughter Genevieve. 
The couple also had another daughter who didn't live with them. After Christine had been working for the Lancelins for two months, she worked up the nerve to ask if her sister Leah could come work there as well. Madame Lancelin agreed, having become suitably impressed by Christine's dedicated work ethic. Christine became the family cook while Leah worked as a chambermaid. The girls worked hard. They put in 12 to 14 hour days, six and a half days a week. Sundays were when their half day occurred, and on those days, the sisters typically attended church together. The Papine sisters had no real interests or hobbies outside of attending church or spending what little free time they had together. Christine and Leah became inseparable, spending all their time outside of work in their tiny attic room. Although no one would ever classify the way the Lancelins treated the sisters as particularly great, they actually received better treatment in some respects than a lot of other servants from that era would receive. The attic bedroom they shared was both heated and had its own small balcony, both of which were considered luxuries. And yet, later on after the murders occurred, Monsieur Lancelin would admit that during the seven years the Papine sisters were in his employ, he never spoke a single word to them. One other seeming act of kindness occurred when Madame Lancelin learned that the girls had been sending all their wages to their mother Clemence. When the Madame heard this, she was enraged. She demanded that the girls stop doing so and instead keep their money for themselves. She even confronted Clemence directly and told her the gravy train was now stopped. The girls saw this behavior as a kindness from Madame Lancelin, but this didn't last. Many local shopkeepers and other Le Mans residents who crossed paths with the sisters found them difficult to get to know. They were often described as cold and aloof. One of Christine's former employers even described the young woman as difficult to get along with. She later said that the girl would become touchy and argumentative, making it difficult to ask her to do anything. At the same time, it was difficult to argue that Christine and Leia weren't hard workers. Their entire lives were focused around their work, since they appeared to have no interest in male suitors or pretty much anything else other than each other. But over time, Madame Lancelin's attitude changed around the girls. Although she originally appeared to act somewhat warmly toward them, she slowly became more cold and distant. She began wearing white gloves around the house to check for dust. Communication became stinted, and eventually she would only communicate directly with Christine, not Leah. And even that communication was often done in the form of a typed message regarding their work. It seems inevitable in that case that Christine would grow fiercely protective of Leah. She also became jealous of the Lancelin's daughter, Jean-Viev. Christine didn't like it one bit when Jean-Viev attempted to get to know Leah. On a few rare occasions, the sisters visited a local medium who informed them that Christine had been Leah's devoted husband in a past life. Christine took this psychic message to heart, believing she needed to remain just as devoted in this life. The two sisters became so unusually close that Madame Lancelin began to suspect they might be engaged in a sexual relationship. The girls did everything together. They braided each other's hair, they made clothes for one another, they spent every waking moment together and slept together in the same tiny bed in their attic room. Some stories claim that Madame Lancelin spied on the girls one night and caught them making love. This would have been the greatest outrage in the conservative community. Not only was homosexuality heavily frowned upon, 
But to add incest on top of that, and you had all the makings of a major scandal. But if this really occurred, Madame Lancelin's reaction was strange to say the least. Although some accounts claim she decided to share what she had seen with the rest of the family. But for some unknown reason, no action was taken against the girls. Instead, life continued as usual. Although Madame Lancelin's attitude toward them did become even colder and harsher. On one occasion, Leah was cleaning the floor and somehow missed a tiny scrap of paper that did not go unnoticed by Madame Lancelin. The older woman was furious and she grabbed Leah and pinched her hard, forcing her down to her knees to pick up the scrap. Leah apologized profusely to Madame Lancelin, but later she told Christine that if the old woman ever laid a hand on her again, she'd make her regret it. As time wore on, Christine's behavior began to change as well. She became prone to explosive fits of anger, often lashing out at Leah for seemingly no reason. Leah didn't understand what was happening. One moment Christine would appear loving and kind, the next she'd be angry and spiteful. What Leah didn't fully comprehend was that Christine was losing her grip on reality. She began to suffer from hallucinations. Many of the symptoms she exhibited sound like paranoid schizophrenia. But back then, these were all things that remained untreated and instead grew steadily worse over time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The winter of 1933 had been particularly harsh. On February 2nd of that year, the wind howled viciously outside the Lancelin's home. Early that day, Madame Lancelin went out shopping with Jean Vievre. The mother and daughter were planning on having dinner with Monsieur Lancelin at his brother-in-law's home later that evening. Christine and Leah were not expecting the Lancelins to return home until late. One of Leah's tasks for the day was to take a broken iron to an electrician to be repaired. But when Leah brought the iron home and plugged it in, it still wasn't fixed and instead shorted out the electricity to the entire house. Since the Lancelins weren't expected back until late in the evening, Christine decided she would leave the fuse to be fixed until the following morning. But this was a mistake. Madame Lancelin and Jean Vievre returned home unexpectedly early, sometime around 5.30 p.m. The Madame was furious when she returned home and discovered the power was out. Christine met them at the door and tried to explain how even though the iron had been fixed, it still shorted out the electricity. But Madame Lancelin wasn't having it. They made their way up to the second floor where the madame began shouting at Christine. But then she made the mistake of raising her hand to slap Christine in the face. That was when Christine snapped. She grabbed a pewter jug and smashed it into Madame Lancelin's skull. Jean Vievre heard the commotion and tried rushing to her mother's aid. But then Christine attacked her as well. Soon Leah came rushing to where the fight was occurring, and she jumped in to help her sister. She began attacking Madame Lancelin, who was attempting to get up. Christine was shrieking how she was going to massacre both Madame and Jean Vievre. Christine began barking orders at Leah, 
first to smash Madame Lancelin's head into the ground, then to tear her eyes out. One thing you can say about Leah was that throughout her life she had always been a dutiful sister, and had always followed Christine's orders. This time was no exception. She did exactly as Christine told her. With her bare hands, Leah dug in and gouged out Madame Lancelin's eyes, while Christine did the same thing to Genevieve. As the two women lay blinded and writhing on the floor, the sisters went to find some tools to finish the job they had started. They returned with a knife and a hammer. They continued to beat and stab the women to death, switching between the pewter jug, the hammer, and the knife. Even after both women lay dead, the mutilation continued. They continued to stab the women repeatedly in the buttocks and thighs. Experts who later responded to the scene would claim the sisters spent as much as two hours mutilating the victims. Some accounts claim the Papine sisters smeared Genevieve's menstrual blood all over the corpses as well. While the murders were occurring, René Lancelin's initial irritation that his wife and daughter were late for dinner began to turn to concern. He eventually headed home and was surprised to find that he couldn't open the door. Someone had bolted and locked it from inside. He thought it strange that even if his wife and daughter weren't there, he knew the maids should be and should answer the door. He went back to his brother-in-law's house hoping that his wife and daughter had just been delayed and had finally gotten there. When he saw they weren't, he enlisted the aid of one of the dinner guests and the two men returned to the house, where they made another attempt to get past the locked front door. Monsieur Lancelin thought it was especially odd how dark the house was. Aside from a single candle he could see flickering in the attic window. Finally, with no other recourse, Monsieur Lancelin went to the police. One of the policemen went around back and climbed a wall to gain entry through the kitchen door. Inside, the house was eerily silent. The policeman used a flashlight to illuminate his path as he quietly crept through the house. At first, he could see no signs of struggle, nor of anything amiss in the house. Everything appeared to be in its place. But as the officer climbed the steps to the second floor, his flashlight fell on a small, round object on the floor. At first, he couldn't make sense of what he was looking at. Then, as recognition came to him, he realized in utter horror, this tiny white ball was looking back at him. It was a human eyeball. The officer gagged and finally called out to Madame Lancelin asking if she was okay, even though he knew she wouldn't be. As he continued to climb the stairs, the police officer finally came across the bodies of Madame Lancelin and Genevieve. They had both been bludgeoned and stabbed to the point where their faces were unrecognizable. Their skirts were yanked up and they were each a bloody mess from the waist down as well. From what the officer could tell, both women's eyes had been removed. Later, Madame Lancelin's eyeballs would be discovered in the folds of the scarf she'd been wearing. The police were aware that there were supposed to be two other maids in the home at the time. By the time more police were summoned, everyone assumed they were going to find two more bodies in the house somewhere. They also worried whoever the madman was who'd committed these terrible crimes might still be there lurking in the shadows. They made their way to the maid's room in the attic. The door was locked from the inside. The gendarme could see candlelight flickering from beneath the door. The officers called out to the young women who did not answer. The officers then were forced to break down the door to the attic room. Inside they found Christine and Leah Papine huddled together in bed. 
They had carefully removed their blood-soaked clothing and washed their bodies. They then put on fresh night clothes and climbed into bed together. Lying next to the bed lay the blood-stained hammer they had used in the attack. There were still bits of human scalp clinging to it. Police tried questioning the sisters at the scene, but when Leah began to speak, Christine shut her down with a stern look. After that, Leah pretended to be deaf and mute. The sisters were taken to the police station for further questioning. There, Christine opened up and admitted to murdering the two women, although she claimed they'd only done so in an act of self-defense. Christine said in her confession that Madame Lancelin had lost her temper over the iron and attacked her first. This left Christine no choice but to defend herself and her sister. She said, I rushed down to the kitchen and went to fetch a hammer and a knife, and with both instruments, my sister and I fought on our two mistresses. We stabbed their heads with a knife, struck them with a pot of tin that was placed on a small table on the landing. We changed the instruments several times from one to the other. That is to say, I passed the knife to my sister, the hammer to strike, and she passed the knife to me. We did the same with the tin pot. The victim screamed, but I do not remember that they spoke a few words as well. I went to lock the door and close the door of the vestibule. I closed these doors because I liked it better than the police who noticed our crime before our boss. Then my sister and I tried to wash our hands because we had them full of blood. Then we got into our room. We took off our belongings, which were stained with blood. We put on a bathrobe. We closed the door to our room and went to bed, both in the same bed. This is where you found us when you broke the door. I do not have any regrets, or, in other words, I cannot tell you if I do not have any. I prefer to have the skin of my bosses rather than they have mine or that of my sister. I did not premeditate my crime. I had no hatred towards them. But I do not accept the gesture that Madame Lancelin had for me this evening. Although Christine gave police a chilling and matter-of-fact confession, Leah refused to say much of anything. She only added that she did as her sister told her to. The following day, Christine changed her story once again and now claimed Leah had not participated in the murders at all. Instead, it had all been her defending them both. The Papin sisters were put on trial in September 1933. At the time, this was one of the biggest news events in all of France. Swarms of people crowded into and outside the courtroom trying to get in on the action. In the days leading up to the trial, Christine's behavior became increasingly erratic. The two sisters were separated and not allowed to see each other. Christine became increasingly depressed at her inability to see Leah. She would sometimes writhe around on the floor in a sexual manner. Her hallucinations grew worse. She even attempted to gouge out her own eyes on one occasion, forcing the authorities to put her in a straitjacket. Christine grew so desperate to see Leah the prison authorities relented on one occasion only. Christine immediately threw herself on Leah tearing open her shirt and further implying the sisters had been engaged in an incestuous relationship. During the trial, some activists began to claim that this was not a case of insanity at all. There was some debate among psychoanalysts and legal experts whether Christine's odd behavior was all just an act in an attempt to drum up an insanity defense. Some scholars saw the Papine sisters' crimes as a deliberate act of class warfare. Several prominent intellectuals, including Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Bouvier, spoke about the Papine sisters as extreme examples of what happens when the lower classes stand up to the aristocracy. 
Several films and other works have been written about the sisters that have debated this same question. Playwright Jean Genet wrote a play titled The Maids that is thought to be inspired by the sisters. In the play, Genet's sisters are not driven by madness so much as they are by their dissatisfaction with their station in life. The Papine sisters' appointed lawyer ultimately decided to plead them not guilty by reason of insanity. But the court appointed three medical experts to conduct their own psychological evaluations of the women. They determined that the girls had no mental disorders and that they were both sane to stand trial. They also discounted the idea that the girls had been engaged in an incestuous relationship and instead stated their belief the unusual familiarity the pair shared was simply a result of them being close siblings. But during the trial, medical testimony revealed a history of mental illness in the Papine family. Their uncle had died by suicide. They also had a cousin who had been committed to an asylum. The psychiatric community continued to hotly debate over whether the young women were mentally ill, despite the testimony provided by the court-appointed experts. Some psychiatrists even insisted the girls were suffering from shared paranoid disorder, a.k.a. polyadu. Some experts claim the sisters exhibited all the classic symptoms of the mental disorder. As evidence, many experts pointed out that there was one dominant member of the pair, Christine, who forced her psychosis in the meeker and more submissive Leah. This is something that can be seen in many other well-known cases of Foliadu, including Leopold and Loeb. But the courts didn't buy the insanity defense. It took the jury only 40 minutes to find the Papine sisters guilty of murder. Christine was sentenced to death by guillotine, while Leah was given the much lesser sentence of 10 years hard labor. Christine's death sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment, but she didn't fare well inside so far apart from her beloved sister. She became increasingly depressed and stopped eating. Prison officials transferred her to an asylum in Rennes, but her condition grew steadily worse, and eventually she died of cachexia, literally wasting away. She was pronounced dead on May 18, 1937. Leah fared better than Christine following the trial. She only served eight years of her 10-year sentence, being released early on good behavior in 1941. She moved to the town of Nantes, where she lived with her mother Clemence. There she assumed a false identity and got a job working as a hotel maid. Although early accounts claim Leah Papine died in 1982, a French film producer believed he actually found Leah alive in a hospice center in 2000 while researching a documentary about the sisters. Leah had actually suffered a stroke which had rendered her partially paralyzed and unable to speak. She died the following year. After that, the Papine sisters were buried in a cemetery in Nance. They were lying side by side, just the way they would have wanted. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Gerald, Colleen, and Rebecca for signing up and helping support the show. I am so grateful to each and every one of you for helping keep the lights on. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including t-shirts, magnets, signed note cards by me, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. They're just like the full-length episodes, only fun-sized. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to tell your friends and family about the conspirators and get them to subscribe and give us a great review on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not an Apple, 
Not to worry. You can also find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Feel free to follow along and drop us a line to let us know how we're doing. Recently, I've received some wonderful feedback and well wishes from some fans. And I have to tell you, it really warms my heart each time. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.